From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. An expert on attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is with me today, and we're going to talk with him about what ADHD is like in children compared with adults. Dr. Stephen Ferrone is a distinguished professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and a professor of neuroscience and physiology at Upstate. And I thank you for being here. Thank you. Well, I know you gave a lecture on ADHD recently. I was surprised how far back there is evidence of the symptoms of ADHD, even before it had the name. Absolutely. Um, people tend to think ADHD is a new invention of uh, American society in the 20th century. We can go back to the 18th century and find a Scottish textbook which first identified the symptoms that we now call ADHD. Uh, they didn't call it. They called it something else. There's a German textbook where the professor describes fidgety Phil as a kid that can't sit, sit still, doesn't do well in school, and so forth. And then you just go through history. There are many descriptions of ADHD-like symptoms, um, most notably when you get to the t early 20th century when there was an outbreak of um, a disease that affected the brain, which caused ADHD-like symptoms. And they call, it, call that minimal brain damage because they thought the brain was damaged in some way and led to those symptoms. So originally it was thought as a... a brain damage? Yeah, as early as the early 20th century, because there was this viral encephalitis that affected the brain, um, there was this hypothesis that, that this disorder was actually a problem with the brain, which they called brain damage first. Later, they changed it to minimal brain dysfunction. Um, and then it wasn't until really the 1980s, early 80s, that we came up with attention deficit disorder, which eventually became attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which sometimes confuses the public, but it's all the same. It's all the same? It's all the same. So did they have treatments for, the, for brain damage? I mean, how did they take care of this? Well, back then, um, they didn't know what, what treatments were, but in the, around 1930, a physician named Charles Bradley, uh, working at what's now Bradley Hospital in Rhode Island, was... Um, doing some studies of kids, and he needed to give them something which he thought would help them with some headaches they were getting. So he gave them a little bit of benzedrine, which is an amphetamine compound. And the next day, the teachers came to him and said, what did you do to our kids? They are doing so much better in school. They're quiet, they're relaxed, they're, they can do their math problems. And he began to study this drug and found out that for some of the kids in this, it was a hospital school, uh, very severe, fairly severely disturbed kids, um, he found that he, a subset of them were improving very much on their school behavior. In fact, the kids used to call it the math pill. Fast forward to the 1960s, Ritalin was, was invented, uh, which is the compound methylphenidate, uh, very similar, having a similar effect on ADHD symptoms. And now we know that the two stimulant compounds, amphetamine and methylphenidate, are very effective treatments for the disorder. Huh. Neat. Interesting. So ADHD, I mean, we started out looking at children with this, but um, it wasn't until later that we started seeing this in adults? Or Well, in the 1960s, it was believed that children just grew out of ADHD, that there was a maturational lag, that the brain just lagged in development, and that eventually the brain would catch up and the ADHD would go away. Around the 19, early 1980s, a few of us began to um, notice that many adults were coming to child psychiatry clinics looking for help that was for a disorder that looked like ADHD. Many children who had had ADHD and grew up couldn't get care from their primary care doctors because they didn't know anything about ADHD and they wouldn't treat it. And so they would go to psychiatrists who would start treating this disorder. And so a number of research projects started in the early 80s and we discovered that roughly about two-thirds of children will retain their ADHD in early adulthood. Um, there's this age-dependent decline in the symptoms that um, some kids totally remit their symptoms by early adulthood, and that continues into, say, the 30s, that there's lower rates in the, in the 30s. So maybe you're down to, say, 
55% or so of uh, people who had ADHD as kids will continue to have persistent impairing symptoms in, in adulthood. But some of them do outgrow it? Some of them do outgrow it. Um, some of them are perfectly okay when they hit young adulthood and, and further. There's some data to suggest that there is there are changes in the brain, a, if you will, a normalization of the brain that helps these helps people grow out of their ADHD. We don't understand that um, 100%, um, but there's also data to suggest that the kids who are treated um, during childhood and adolescence are more likely to outgrow their ADHD um, as adults. So is this something that people are born with, and uh, or is it... Or does it develop later in life, or is it? Are you born with it, and it's just overlooked until? And most later? of the risk factors for ADHD that we know of occur very early in life. So that includes our genes, which we are born with. It includes events that occur uh, during pregnancy and delivery, such as pregnancy complications that might deprive the brain of oxygen for a short period of time, and we think lead to brain abnormalities. It can involve exposure to toxins, and that can occur somewhat later in life. We know that, for example, pesticide exposure is a mild risk for ADHD, or PCB exposure may be a mild risk for ADHD. I should point out that all of these risks are tiny risks, and they, they cumulatively add up to cause ADHD. So it's not one gene or one exposure, or because the mother smoked during pregnancy, it caused the ADHD. Um, there are small effects that occur that add up cumulatively to cause, cause the disorder. That said, the onset of the disorder is variable. Some children start very early. As preschoolers, they're extremely active and difficult and, and cause all sorts of problems and inattentive in school later on. Um, some children don't show their ADHD until adolescence, and there are some cases where an adult comes into a clinic, and it's very hard to establish an onset of symptoms prior to age 12, which is actually the requirement in the diagnostic manual that they occur before age 12. Uh, and sometimes that's because of inability of the patient to recall. And we know from research projects that we and others have done that if you, if you diagnose ADHD in childhood and you follow that child into adulthood and you ask them as an adult about their childhood, they don't remember their ADHD symptoms. They tend not to recall, recall that. Hmm. So part of the uh, problem we have when patients come to clinic and appear not to have a childhood history of ADHD but have current symptoms is that they simply don't recall their symptoms. If we can get a hold of their parent and ask them, um, sometimes it's, it's, it, it helps. Um, I also like to point out, in terms of the onset of the disorder, that some people who have ADHD can be protected from the disorder for a while because of in what we call environmental scaffolding, which means that, for example, they may have very good parents, very organized parents, who help them organize their lives and escape some of the uh, impairments of ADHD and escape some of the symptoms of ADHD. They may go to a well-structured school where the teacher is very good at handling kids with ADHD. Um, they may have a milder form of the disorder that doesn't emerge until the stresses of the environment get um, so bad that they overwhelm the ability of the brain's um, frontal lobes to control um, th those symptoms. So we frequently see emergence of symptoms at key transition periods. A child moves from grammar school, which is well-structured, to say middle school or high school, which is less well-structured, and the decrease in structure makes it harder for the ADHD person to, um, to uh, succeed, and you see an emergence of symptoms. And the same is true from going from high school to college and then from college to a, re to a real job. Or if an event occurs like, say, the birth of a child, uh, and a new mother is all of a sudden faced with a fairly chaotic environment, dealing with that becomes much more difficult, and then we, might, we may see emergence of ADHD symptoms. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, let me re remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate professor Stephen Ferrone. He's an expert in ADHD. And you have a website about ADHD in adults. Um, yes, is our website is ADHDinadults.com. 
and it's a place where primary care practitioners can get training about how to diagnose and treat ADHD in adulthood. Okay, well, let's talk about the differences in the symptoms um, from a child to an adult with ADHD, because you're going to be looking for different things, right? Absolutely. So the the three cardinal symptoms of ADHD are hyperactivity, uh, lots of running around, climbing on furniture in childhood, for example, uh, inattention, and impulsivity. What we see in childhood is a lot of hyperactivity, uh, and we also see inattention and impulsivity. If he's a child running into the street to fetch a ball and not noticing that there's a car coming. Um, those kinds of symptoms will, all the symptoms persist to some degree in adulthood, but the hyperactive and impulsive symptoms tend to decrease where the inattentive symptoms tend to stay constant. And so... So in, inability to focus, is that inattention? Inability or? to focus is, is a very good example of inattention. Um, being disorganized is another uh, example of inattention. So the ADHD adult is not somebody who is going to be running around and climbing on furniture like a hyperactive child. Um, but they show these inattentive symptoms, these symptoms of disorganization. They will show, for example, or they'll show a preference for situations in which they don't have to sit still. So, for example, if someone has a job which requires them to sit in a conference room, they'll tell the doctor, well, I, I can do it, but I really hate it. I'm just, I, have to, I have to get up and walk around a little bit. I have to pace for it, it to be in the meeting. Uh, there's this internal sense of restlessness. There's an internal sense of restlessness, and in fact, in our diagnostic manuals, in an adult, you can use that sense of internal restlessness that's, that's, that's um, in a sense, impairing. It causes the person a problem. You can use that as a, as a, as a diagnosis. Well, in terms of diagnosing, um, it, can you, or do we have the ability to do like a brain scan and see um, ADHD in the brain? Uh, we, do, we do not. There are, there's no objective biological brain test for ADHD. Uh, the brain differences we see between people with, without ADHD are real, but they're small. And they're too small to make um, good diagnoses. Which one of the um, things we're studying here at Upstate is: just can we develop a uh, a method using artificial intelligence to compare ADHD brains and non-ADHD brains? And it's proving to be a difficult task. Huh. Okay. So it's based basically on on symptoms, and then um, how do you treat ADHD in an adult versus a child? So the treatment of ADHD for uh, either adults or children is roughly classified into two groups, uh, treatment with medications and tr treatment without medications. Uh, the medications for ADHD that work in children are the same ones that work in adults, and these are um, stimulant medications. Uh, people will, will recognize the names Ritalin and Adderall. Um, their technical terms are methylphenidate and amphetamine. Uh, and these medications work very well. They have minim minimal side effects. They've been used for decades. Uh, they probably are the most effective medications in all psychiatry in terms of how well they control symptoms of the disorder. Hmm. Um, there's another uh, group of medications which are, we call them non-stimulant medications because Ritalin and Adderall are stimulants and then other medications work in different brain systems and they're called non-stimulants. Um, they tend to be not as effective for ADHD. They're roughly about two-thirds as effective in treating the disorder compared to the stimulants, but they do work very well in a subset of kids. Um, uh, an example would be Stratera. That's probably the most well-known um, non-stimulant. There's also Capve and Intuinive. Um, that uh, again, these work in what's called the noradrenergic system versus the stimulants tend to work mostly in the dopaminergic system. Although that's a bit of a simplification. And these are um, medications that'll be required for a lifetime. Medications that uh, typically are required for a lifetime. As the child gets older, there is this age-dependent decline in symptoms and the disorder, and some children do outgrow it. So, periodically, the physician will say, maybe we should try 
a holiday off the medication to see how you're doing. And if the symptoms don't merge after the medication is removed, then it's possible that they can, they can be removed. Are there non-medication treatments? That there are non-medication treatments. Now, all of the medication treatments, I should point out, have been rigorously tested with uh, what we call um, randomized placebo-controlled designs. Um, the non-medication treatments that have been tested, there's actually very few that, are, um, that show that they're effective for ADHD uh, by themselves. Hmm. So one uh, talk therapy type of treatment is called cognitive behavior therapy. We know that that is useful in people who are on medication. It helps people on medication do better than they do just on medication. Um, but it's, it doesn't help people, it's not been proven to help people who are not on medication. Okay. Already, so sort of medication controls most of your symptoms. Then cognitive behavior therapy can be a booster to help you out there. Um, as you probably know, the public is very much interested in any kind of um, vitamin or supplement that is supposed to help the brain. And you can just Google it on the internet, and you'll, there's lots of so-called natural treatments for ADHD. Um, the only one that's been that's shown any hope for, of um, of use in ADHD would be the omega-3 fatty acids. Fish oil, fish oil? Uh, that okay. we, we know of. It's good for a number of things. The studies of fish oil show that it is, it is effective, but it uh, has a very small effect. So, for example, on a scale of 1 to 10, if Adderall and Ritalin are a 10, fish oil is about a 2. And the non-stimulants might be about, a, say, a 6 or a 7. So we don't recommend fish oil as a treatment because it's minimally effective for Okay. for the disorder. We don't have much time left, but I would like to know what the outlook is for an, uh, someone who isn't diagnosed until adulthood. Um, so the outlook for ADHD varies, of course, with the severity of the disorder. Um, we'd like to emphasize for people that this is a condition that can have a, a profound impact on one's life. We know that in adults, it affects their ability to hold a job. Adults with ADHD are more likely to be unemployed. Uh, we know from, for example, if you look at... Um, People who graduated, just look at people who graduated from high school with a, an A average, and then we'd say, how, how are they doing later on in life? Just people who are A students in high school. Um, if you have ADHD and you are an A student, you're not doing as well in terms of your uh, job performance, in terms of how much money you're making compared to someone who was not an, not an A student. So it's, it affects um, employment. Uh, it, people with ADHD are at risk for other health problems. Um, there's a, a very well-documented association of ADHD and obesity. Uh, we're now learning from studies that we're just doing right now that there's also seems to be a link between ADHD and subsequent uh, hypertension and subsequent diabetes and possibly, possibly dementia. And this doesn't mean everybody with ADHD is fated to have these problems, not at all, uh, but it, because it's only a, a small group that ends up having, having these conditions. But we do know that the risks are real. There's even a very small risk for premature death. People with ADHD are more likely to have an earlier death than people without. Most of that seems to be accounted for by accidents um, because, for example, if you have ADHD and you're driving, you're driving a car, you're more likely to have a motor vehicle accident, which eventually could cause a serious health problem or, or death. Again, these are small risks, but it's important to have pe for people to be treated because we, we want to make these risks zero. We don't want them to be. So it is important to be diagnosed and treated, uh, whether you're an Absol adult or Absolutely, child. absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, my guest has been Upstate Professor Stephen Ferrone, an expert in ADHD. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.